0: The Royal Australian Air Force in person 1921
1: to 2021,
0: Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McCrae, OAM.
1: Air Commodore Benjamin Sleeman, CSC, DSM, Deputy Air Commander, Australia. Ben joined the Australian Air Force in January of 1990 and after attending the Defence Force Academy, proceeded to pilot training. He then completed fast jet training and was posted to 75 Squadron in Tyndall on the FA-18 Hornet. In 1999, Ben completed 26 Fighter Combat Instructor Course. Ben deployed on Operation Slipper with 3 Squadron in early 2002. In 2003, he deployed again on Operations Bastille and Falconer. In 2004, Ben was promoted to Squadron Leader and completed postings at 75 Squadron as a Flight Commander and then Executive Officer. Ben was promoted to Wing Commander and in 2011 he attended the US Air Force Air War College in Alabama, graduating with a Master of Strategic Studies. In 2013, Ben assumed command of 77 Squadron, during which he deployed on Operation Okra. Ben was then posted as the Director of the Air and Space Operations Center in Joint Operations Command on promotion to Group Captain in June 2016. In January 2018, he assumed command of 81 Wing, overseeing the transition of the wing from the F-A-18A to the F-35A aircraft. In December 2019, Ben was promoted to Air Commodore and again deployed to the Middle East region as Combined Air Operations Centre Director at Qatar, at USAF 609th Air Operations Centre. In November 2020, Ben assumed his current role as the Deputy Air Commander Australia based at RAAF Glenbrook. Well, it is a great honour to be able to talk to Air Commander Benjamin Sleeman. Sir. Good morning. I won't call you sir other than after
0: that first time. How are you? Deal, I'm I'm very well, thank you. That's good. I'm very well. And you joined the Air Force in 1990. Why? Good question, and I can't really answer it because that's all I ever remember. That's all I ever wanted to do was fly fighters. And I have no other idea why or where that came from, other than I had a uh, my godmother's husband flew mirages, and so I kind of idolised him, I guess. Fair enough. Um, and but that was it.
1: So uh, as a little boy, I mean, did you have paper aeroplanes? And, and oh yeah, I had
0: paper aeroplanes. Did aeroplane models. Learned to fly while I was at school. While you were at school. Yeah, I went to a school in Perth, uh, which offered an aviation course. Wow. For, as a I guess HSCTE uh, subject, so I did that for year eleven and twelve. So. Went first solo about three days after my 16th birthday. Goodness gracious.
1: There was a thing, or there still is, the Air Training Corps, the ATC. Did that exist then? Uh, Not that I can recall. So at school you weren't part of a... No, I wasn't, no. Yeah. No the Air Force's benefit. You've loved, you have possibly love flying. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how did you join? I mean, what what is it? W- walked
0: into an office and say, I want to join up. What was the process? You know, it's a long time ago. So you're going to really test my recollection, but uh, Air Force or defense recruiting probably was in the middle of Perth City. Yep. Um, and I used to catch a bus to school and went past uh, that general area. So I, I don't know the actual t- flow of events, but probably dropped in there one day to get brochures and uh, scope things out and just ended up uh, applying.
1: So you walked in and you already had a pilot's licence.
0: I did, yeah. You already could yeah. fly.
1: So yeah. that, that's got to be an advantage.
0: Mm. I hope so. Well,
1: it seemed oh, to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so you, you joined. Do you remember at least what the process was like after they accepted you and you'd signed up and you're in from step one through to getting to a fast jet training? What were the, what were the steps like in between and how did you, how, what, what do you remember?
0: Yeah, generally most of it, I guess. So uh, joined. um, from Perth, so uh, I joined through ADVA the Defence Force Academy in Canberra, Mm -hmm. so when did a three-year degree, so that's step one. Right. Um, So you join up, 18th of January 1990, walk back into recruiting and, you know, raise your right hand and do all that sort of thing, and then um, out to the airport at 9.30pm-ish at night to catch the overnight flight to Canberra via Melbourne, which is not a very good way to start basic military training, uh, completely sleep-deprived from the Red Eye Special out of Perth. Was
1: that a DC-3 you flew in there? I think
0: it was a 727. 727. Yeah, 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 which is almost DC-3, but not quite. Yeah. And then yeah, three years at uh, at Adfa doing basic military training, um, as well as obviously a, a university degree, bachelor of science degree. So that's you know, first three years. Yeah, uh, not so, a lot of
1: flying in there, but so Ben, in your position now as air commander, air commodore, sorry. When you look back, how good was not how good is, but how good was the training for air force personnel in your early stages?
0: Oh, I must have been okay because I'm still here. Adfa is very broad, it's tri-service and it covers every single sort of uh, you know pilot, logistics, administration. So it covers everything. Yep. So it's not specific. So I think it's very good and probably but the benefit really is even now my equivalent in navy is my classmate from Adfa. Really, um, and my my you know uh, the air commander equivalent in army is my classmate from Adfa. So you sort of rise up through the ranks with a. a so it's bunch a of peers it's a brotherhood. Oh, well, and there's or, ladies in there too. Uh, so, sorry, yeah. sorry, bad choice of words. It, it's it's <laughs> yes. a partnership. Of collective, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just people you bump into, and and you know, and you sort of bounce in and out of uh, of their professional lives over the years.
1: And what about the inter? communication between the forces or across the forces because at one stage no doubt pre-world war Two, there was an air force there was an army and
0: there was a navy and they never really seemed to talk to each other what's it like now oh absolutely like that particularly at, you know dining in nights and things like that so um yeah i mean there's still service rivalry uh, yeah. alive and well yeah. um but when you come down to it and you're, and you're doing the job then that you know that all kind of gets put aside uh, and you know the person personally yeah. as opposed to like, it's just an army an army person
1: Your first flights in Air Force planes, what was the very first one you got into?
0: Uh, As a pilot, I guess, it's a a PC-9 over in Perth uh, under training. So I'd been in Air Force planes uh, while I was at ADFA. They'd taken us on a trip around Australia on a a Boeing 707, and we went to all sorts of spots, Darwin, Townsville. uh, So what is a PC-9? Uh, The old basic trainer that's now retired, it's been replaced by a PC-21. prop? No, it's a prop. It's got a jet engine, a turbo prop. So um, it's a heck of a sporty aeroplane to learn to fly in. Um, which we still do today, so it obviously works again. But, yeah, you know, like 900 horsepower compared to a really? Cessna 152 that I was flying at school which with, you know, 120 horsepower or something. So it goes, yeah. And
1: you jump eventually to the F-18s. Did that not occur until you got into 75 Squadron?
0: No, you do your training before that. So from pilot's course, about 18 months on the PC-9, give or take. Um, and then you do you do some, uh, some jet training. So you fly the Mackie also retired, um, made in Italy, a lovely little Italian, uh, you know, Alfa Romeo of the sky kind of aeroplane. Uh, I like
1: your car analogy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
0: For about a year, uh, including time, six months in Perth and six months in Williamtown, uh, doing some, you know, here's roughly how you fight in an aeroplane. We know you can fly it, but here's how you fight it. uh, Very basically. And then now you've got a bit of an idea how to fight it. You do a F-18 conversion, uh, which was in Williamtown as well.
1: So your first flight in the F-18, what do you remember?
0: Uh, I remember the most distinct thing. Actually, I, I was flying with a South African guy, a lovely guy, um, who's uh, still kicking around. But it had a head-up display. That's the first, my first experience with a head-up display, and a. It has a horizon line, which is like the zero pitch. You're not climbing, you're not descending. So, so
1: sorry to interrupt, is the head-up display in your helmet screen, or is it on the screen itself? In
0: those days, it was on a screen projected in in the windscreen. In the windscreen, so very right. similar to a car where you might get your speed. Yep. Um, nowadays, yes, we do have helmet mounted, and there's nothing in front of you. But those days, just a bit of combining glass projected from below sure. and in the windscreen, and there was a horizon line. Which, if you, as a pilot, if you put the the attitude of the aeroplane on the horizon, you're not going to go up and you're not going to go down. You're staying level. So that all makes sense. Yep. Um, you have an old one in, on a ball in the centre of older aeroplanes. and So we take off and climb up and we level off. And I'm expecting the horizon line to be on the horizon, and it's not. It's above the horizon because the Earth's curved. Of course. And I'm just like, this is mind-blowing. The horizon line is not on the horizon. Surely there's something wrong. It's like, uh, actually, no, the Earth's round, so it's never going to be on the horizon. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a little bit off-putting. That though, was now. a bit off-putting, yeah. But, um, and I also remember coming back into uh, into the circuit area, which is sort of you know practising taking off and landing, where you just go round and round and round. But uh, the power, the... It is so, it's like driving with a Malaysian taxi driver, you know, where they're either full brake or full accelerator and there's no in-between. It's like, you know, full power, full stop, full power, full stop. So the power of this aeroplane where you're just making very small changes on the throttle, two engines, but very small changes. But the aeroplane's kind of, you know, bucking as you're slowing it down and speeding it up. Just the immense power behind it.
1: So that first flight in the F-18 then, compared to the Mackie and the PC-9... That was a quantum leap. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, quantum leap in uh, performance, size, the Mackie, you know, you can look over the top of a Mackie, the Hornet, you can walk underneath it. Uh, And the avionics inside, you know, well surpassed now by the F-35, but the avionics inside it, TV screens, amazing, and a head-up display, amazing, and switches absolutely everywhere, and a throttle and a a joystick controller that just looks like something, you know, you'd play on a video game.
1: One of your... (laughs) it's an interesting way to look at it. Is it one of your favourite planes to have flown?
0: Uh, it is, absolutely. Yeah, I spent my, uh, I don't know, 20 mass in public now, uh, like 25 years on in and the F 18. Off, F-18, flying off and on. That aer- yeah, mainly on, but um, probably 23 out of 25 years so flying that airplane.
1: Excluding yeah. the F 35, excluding that, how does it rate in terms of all of the aircraft that Australia has ever owned and used in warfare?
0: Uh, I mean, they get better as we um, as we upgrade uh, and buy new aeroplanes. So that was an A-model Hornet, which we bought in the in – the well, delivered in the 80s, 80s purchased yeah. in the 70s. Um, and leading, cutting edge at the time, incredible. Uh, it's been replaced uh, – well, not replaced so much. We surplus that. Uh, at, is that the right word? We uh, bought another capability to replace the F-111, which is the F-model mm-hmm. uh, Hornet, the Super Hornet, which is, again, bigger and better avionics, and that's better. No doubt, that's better, but it's sure. thirty years newer. And then the F thirty five again, a quantum leap ahead. But, but
1: notwithstanding the developments, I mean, the, the first, the ones you were
0: flying, they were the peak peak of the the point of the spear. They they were the start. They were, yeah. yeah. And, and we kept them that way by upgrading them. So what we bought in the eighties and got delivered in the eighties and nineties was nothing like what I flew uh, when they got retired. Well, they got retired last year, but what I flew, you know, up until the end of twenty nineteen, we. We'd taken it back to the dealership every 12 months and had a new software load. Put so in. That, it's, is that the way the F-18 was
1: updated? It was software updates? No, not-
0: it was hardware as well. It was everything o- other than physically the airframe. So, if so the airframe a- stayed the same. But Largely, what went inside yes. of it, yeah. that was yeah. updated. So all the computer boxes that are behind those doors were pulled out with a new smaller box sure. put in and the software was replaced about every 12 days. And, and its
1: firepower, was that upgraded as well? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, totally new weapons throughout so its time of what life. what was in
1: it when you started as opposed to maybe 10 or 15 years later?
0: So we were flying the AIM-7 Sparrow, which is a radar-guided uh, missile with a mm, ballpark, probably 20-kilometre kind of range. Yep. Uh, as its long-range weapon and an AIM-9 on the wingtips as its uh, infrared-guided short-range, five kilometres probably. Sure. Uh, and when it retired, we had the ASRAM, which is uh, you know well past the five kilometres, and, an, and an AMRAM, uh, which is a semi-active, so you can launch it, guide it for a little bit, and then leave, and it does the rest of the hard work. So, what would its distance have been? Twenty kilometres, or uh, well more than twenty. Mm. Yeah, so probably double for. Double to more than... Okay, and you
1: mentioned that the one, the first one you flew was a twin engine?
0: They're all twin engines, yeah. yeah okay. It, yeah.
1: Um, why do you
0: think we've gone away from twin engines and gone into single well, engines? there wasn't any twin engines for sale. we yeah. only got single engine ones uh, at the those factory floor now. Made. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough.
1: Is that... As a pilot, what would you rather fly, a twin engine or a single engine? Forget, forget what's available, just as terms of oh, preference. I mean...
0: Uh, Two's always better than one. Four's always better than two. If you're in airlines, you know, yeah, would you sure. fly a jumbo jet or an A330? I don't know. You'd probably choose four. Yeah, um, sure. So I, I would choose two, just for simple redundancy. Okay. But there's other things that make it, you know, a lot harder to mount two in there. You need two of everything rather than one of everything. It's heavier.
1: Yeah, I understand. Um, Use a bit more fuel. So. I want to come back to that a little bit later, if I may, Ben. But I, I don't want to necessarily trace your steps to becoming an air. Commodore, because that's a significant step, series of steps. But for someone listening right now, we often hear people talk in jargon. They talk about operations that Australian Defence Forces mm-hmm. have been involved in, like Operation Slipper and Operation Bastille and Falconer and Okra. And and they think, oh, what is what does all that mean? You were in Operation Slipper in
0: 2002? I was, yeah.
1: Now, what is or what was Operation Slipper?
0: At the time, it was very broad uh, because it was, I guess, Australia's f- first response to the war on terrorism. So, mm-hmm. this is immediately post 9-11 yep. in, at the end of 2001. And it's like a, Australia's commitment to, the, to combat the, uh, the war on terror around the globe. So, it's, it wasn't specific. It covered everything essentially in the Middle East. Anything that had any sort of terrorism flavour was slippery. Not so. in any specific country? It was just the no, Middle East? No, very, very broad, uh, as was, um, you know, some. Oh, uh, for example, what are they running now? High Road. Well, that High Road is just Afghanistan. Um, Accordion is the equivalent Accordion, now. yep. So, Accordion is very broad. It's just anything in that region. Okay. So,
1: where were you based? Who's in charge and what was the commitment by Australia to that operation?
0: Uh, for sleep For you. For me? Okay, so uh, I was at uh, Three Squadron at the time, um, and we sent four uh, F-18s to Diego Garcia to take over alert um, protecting uh, what's in that uh, what's at that place. So you'll need to do some Google Maps uh, research on that. There's a lot of stuff sitting in Diego Garcia yes. ready to be used, uh, and we were the, like the uh, alert protection of it to protect it from aeroplanes that might want to do what they did in September 11, because it's immediately after... September 11, airliners are weapons. Of course, uh, so we're there to uh, to protect against those.
1: And what was your daily routine as a, as a pilot?
0: So we were there three months. Uh, 77 went first at the end of 2001. The three squadron took over three months later, uh, and it was basically sitting alert. So we had a small number of pilots, probably a dozen, four airplanes, and 50 techos to keep them uh, serviceable, mm-hmm. and we were on 24 hour alert. So. At all times there was two people down in an alert shack on the end of the runway. The aeroplanes are there, they're armed, they're prepared. They've been pre-flighted, they've been started and shut down in a configuration where you can get in and go very quickly. Uh, The pilots are back in a little you know, it's very World War II here, right? A little alert hut just off the back of the end of the, uh, on the side of the runway there. We're in our flying gear. We've got our G-suit on, because that takes the longest. So you're sleeping in that if necessary. Sleeping yeah. in your boots and your G-suit. Yep. You, just wait, you haven't got your, uh, your Secamar, your May West equivalent on. You don't have that on and you don't have your helmet on, but that's pretty easy to don that. Uh, and you're sitting there playing video games for eight hours, waiting to get the call out. So when a call out, uh, and did a call, call outs occur? Over the time we had Hornets there, six months, I think it probably happened three times. It happened once on, on our shift, uh, all, all false alarms. So you're getting a queuing off uh, Off the coast was a US Navy warship uh, with a radar, yep. uh, and it was basically our alert, you know, I've got something on my radar, uh, Diego Garcia is under a bunch of east-west air routes uh, through the middle of the Indian Ocean. Uh, I don't know what it is, it's not talking on the radio, I can't identify it, please uh, get airborne. And so up, up you go. And up we go, yeah. So... In that event, you did. You got in. You got an upwind. Personally, you went. I, I wasn't even on shift at that time, so okay. uh, there was, I guess, one crew, and I don't even remember who that was. But yeah. So you were ever involved in a flight for an alert? We had practice ones where you didn't know that you were going against a, like I guess, a setup, a practice. So there was a lot of um, uh, refueling uh, aircraft based in Diego Garcia and some bombers, so B two and but sorry, not B two, B fifty two. Uh, bombers were there so they would be doing missions up into the middle east yeah and when they were coming back every now and again just as a practice that we wouldn't know about it but we'd get launched to intercept something and be like but this is a this is a friendly airplane oh yeah it's just a practice so
1: what what were the instructions to you if you'd gone up and it wasn't a friendly what what were you told to do take it out uh, absolutely yeah if it wasn't a friendly yeah yep and what constituted a non-friendly
0: uh well something not responding i guess is um and there, there was a few other steps and it's like now 20 something years ago but loosely speaking not responding uh you would pull up you'd intercept it well before uh Diego Garcia yeah sure uh and you'd pull up and if you know for for example if all the window shutters are down and it's the middle of the day that's a, that's bit, a that's dead a, giveaway it's a warning it's just a, something you'd piece together so you'd feed that back and you can pull up and you know look from the fighter cockpit into the the airline cockpit and you know if you get a friendly wave it's probably okay but if you know, you look in there, and there's someone with a gun to their head, or uh, they're all slumped over, or something like sure. that. Like, then, that's another then it warning. Comes an unfriendly, and, and you're feeding this back uh, via the radio to the warship. And yeah. did whatever constituted
1: the enemy at that stage? Did they have access to jet fighters?
0: No, they wouldn't have had access. So to
1: all that. you were really concerned about were airlines that could potentially have been being used as a Absolutely, weapon. Absolutely, yeah. Very September 11. September 11, yeah. all over yeah. again. So. How long was op- were you part of Operation Slipper? You started in 2002. Did you move into Bastille and Falconer because of Slipper or was that a separate thing?
0: A totally separate thing. So I came home. Uh, we, we had Hornets in Diego for about six months. So um, I did the second three months of that six months and we came home at the end of April 2002. Uh, went back to life as normal and then um, operations in the Middle East with, uh, against Saddam Hussein. Okay, Uh, started ramping up sort of through that year and then we deployed.
1: And that's Bastille and Falconer. How are they different? Different names, different tasks?
0: Uh, Yeah, sort of. Sort of the same flow of events. But Bastille was the kickoff. We're coming over. We're with you as a coalition. We're trying to put pressure on Saddam to allow weapons inspectors in. Um, all that sort of thing and then as soon as combat operations started that became Falconer so literally it was Bastille yesterday and it was Falconer today because we started employing weapons
1: Interesting choice of names Bastille the fall of the The in during the French Revolution and Falconer a plane that a bird that flies and attacks. That's that's right. Interesting choice. I wonder who chooses names like that. Obviously, people know in your your particular ring. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Have you got one lined up now? Doesn't I don't. don't. No, I don't (laughs) want to go there. Um, Operation Bastille and Falconer. You are flying with other nations the United States especially, uh, what's the command structure like and what's the intercommunications like between the Australians and whoever's in charge?
0: Uh, it's it's excellent. I'm actually not flying in Bastille or Falconer. I'm in the CAOC, the Combined Air and Air Operations Centre right um, in the Middle East, which is where all the planning uh, gets done. So uh, our jets are not co-located with us. So we've just got a small command element. I'm in the command element, about 20 people plus 20 uh, computer IT communications. Sure. So whatever we um, come up with tasking, we can push back to the Australian uh, people to get it um, through you know, good good communications, but I'm in the command element. So we're planning this whole so thing. So
1: in that command element of which there are 20-ish people, yes. what are the nationalities and who's in charge? Oh, everything.
0: everything. Uh, I mean, there's a US uh, general in charge. Command, so that's in the, in the US parlance, it's the Central Theatre. So they have CENTCOM, Central yep. Command. Yep. Under that is Central Air Force, Central Army, Central Navy. Uh, so CENTAF working for CENTCOM. And then we have, um, uh, at the time, Group Captain Brown, who became Chief of Air Force, was the senior Australian representative in that theatre.
1: Sure. You said the American was a general. General implies army. He's got an army background no, or a marine background? No, the
0: US back- use uh, general... Because the US Air Force spat out of the US Army as it did for Australia, but many years later than us. So General Army, General yeah, Air Force, sure. Same so General. sure. Yeah. So
1: the cooperation as a unit, because you've come from different
0: nations, how did that work? Uh, it works like almost seamlessly. You're just getting in the you know this huge big building, a couple of thousand people uh, working in there, and we arrive as Australians with our with our uh, F 18s and that this is our capability. And they're like, right, can you do this, that, or that? And you're like, we can do any of those things. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll program you. And, you know, one of my roles in there was to make sure that whatever, well, whatever was on offer, we'd sort of try and choose the best stuff sure. for our team, not to have, not have them doing something, A, that we were not legally allowed to do, which yep. obviously we wouldn't, but B, if it was, a, you know, a boring job, we don't want the boring one, we'll take the well, What's run.
1: this illegally allowed, illegally not allowed to do? What kinds of things would fall under that umbrella?
0: Uh, anything with chemical or nuclear weapons, right. um, you know, cluster munitions, things like that. We don't, we don't have them. We never train to them. We don't operate them. Sure. Um, so every country goes over with its own rules of engagements and its own risk appetite. Uh, and, so, and that's well understood. It's, that's always the way it's been. So if I get this right, uh, a US pilot flying whatever
1: he's flying and an Australian pilot also flying, would they have different tasks of what they were allowed to take out? They would. They would.
0: I mean, they they might. They wouldn't necessarily, but yes. But that that could be the case. Absolutely, yeah. And the French would have something again and the Brits would have something again and the Dutch would have something again. Is that in any way, shape or form an impediment
1: to the running of an allied campaign?
0: You know, you could say yes, very simply, yes. If you just wanted to write one line of tasking and anybody can do it, that that'd be ideal but yeah. that's not a reality so no, of course is of it course. an impediment no not really it's just a, a known fact so okay w- you know we all work that out together at the planning stage and it, it doesn't become an issue i'm interested
1: from a service personnel point of view you're there in operation bastille and operation falconer operation falconer is potential to go further there's the possibility of war i mean it could well, falconer it could, is war that's when well it is war yeah. okay it is war was that ever discussed how, how do air force personnel talk about that when when you're in the midst of that what goes
0: on in the head um oh i think really it's just get get the job done get the job done yeah yeah so uh, you know that's what you've trained for uh when you fly fighters you're not expecting to haul cargo to hong kong yeah you know in the back of your mind it's like at some stage i might be asked by my country to go and do things that uh you know are not nice necessarily so sure it's always there and it's just, a, you know, that's what you're living with.
1: How long did you spend there with Operation Falconer?
0: That was another... Well, Bastille Falconer combined another three months.
1: Three months. So yeah. you're back in Australia, what, 2004? Uh, back, yeah, sort of uh, April, May 2003. And how long before you ended up in Alabama at the United States Air
0: Force College? Oh, that was another eight years after that. Eight so years after well, that. Seven years? I don't know. Yeah, 2011. I how went did out you end that. up there? Uh, I was... Um, About to take up a command at 77 Squadron, and uh, one of the requirements of command is to have uh, Staff College, commander Staff College. uh, In America? No, you must have completed it, normally in Australia. Uh, And the job I'd been doing, which was in Canberra and Air Force headquarters, my timing just didn't work. And it was like, right, you need to go and do this course... You, you should have started five months ago. I like, well, uh, yeah, but started five months ago. It's like, wow, well, there's one that starts in a month's time in Alabama. Can you do that?
1: Okay, so before you get to Alabama, you'd been promoted to uh,
0: WC? I'd been a wing commander for wing? Uh, yeah for a yeah. couple of years, yeah.
1: And had that come about as a result of the kinds of things you'd been doing overseas in the Middle East? Your
0: pro- your promotion, was it predicated on that kind of engagement? Yeah, I mean, it probably factored in there. I wouldn't say directly because it was a number of years later, but... Might have played a, played a part, yeah. Okay,
1: so you'd would you been involved with Americans in, in the Middle East. Mm. You're now in Alabama
0: of all states yeah. in the United yeah, States no, the of America. South. Tell me tell me, tell me, me about your experience there. It was uh, very different. So if you've been, you know, you think of America and you watch uh, 90210 or Sex in the City or you've been to Las Vegas, Los Angeles or New York. Interesting choices of programs, then uh, yeah. but anyway, go um, on. And it's nothing like any of that. Uh, having spent a bit of time in the Northern Territory myself and loving it up there, it's, it's kind of similar to that. It's just a small community, it's rural, everyone's friendly, everyone knows everybody, it's hot, because uh, it's the South, uh, and it was lovely.
1: How did you cope with the accent and how did they cope with yours?
0: Uh, I think they might have struggled a few times. It was a little <laughs> bit hard in the grocery store to, you know, to ask for things, and if you're ever trying to buy ice, it came across more like arse, and you're like, no, no, just, ice, ice, I'm having a barbecue, I need some ice. Like, hey, we don't sell arse here.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, and, and the U.S. Air Force College War College it's uh, in Alabama, what's, tell me about it. What's it
0: like? What, what do they do? What's their task? So they have a they have three different colleges on that campus. Uh, it's a basically a university base. It's the Air University, the U.S. Air Force's Air University. So they have um, different colleges for different rank levels. So they have some senior enlisted colleges for the Airmen. They have a junior officer course, uh, um, which they're running Air Command and Staff College, and then they have Air War College for more senior mm-hmm. uh, Air Force. Well, actually, it's tri-service uh, for them. They have more than three services, including the Marines and the Coast Guard. But it's a joint. So 250 students, probably 50 internationals, 200 Americans, of which probably 60 are U.S. Air Force and the other 140 are different parts of the U.S. service. And you spend a year doing a master's degree. Okay. And their training is exemplary? Yeah, it's, it's really good. It's uh, jointly run by uh, civilian professors and very academic kind of people, as well as some very highly qualified uh, U.S. and other services, but uh, military personnel in uniform. With you the only Australian in that Cohort. So there was actually another Australian there, um, a good friend of mine at the time. So there was two of us on War College and there was another Australian on the uh, Commander Staff College and another one doing a very small niche course called uh, School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. So that only has about uh, 30 students. So, okay. so there was four Aussies in Alabama for that uh, 12-month period. And
1: the bond, the spirit of com- comradeship between USF, USF and us – at that college, how was that?
0: Yeah, I mean, excellent. Uh, you you just you're treated like anybody else. Everybody rolls in. It doesn't matter. They had, as I said, fifty different nations. You're all you're all on a course together. Um, and but interestingly, you know, again, a la us talking before about me working with army and navy people. I've worked with people. Off uh, by course in, in the States Yeah, that you can sort of link back to us. Oh, I was on War College with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so there is a bond. The relationship between the United States Air Force and the Royal Australian Air Force is pretty close, Very I close. would assume.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, and also US Navy because they were the operator of the uh, the Hornet. So
1: mm. yeah. Have you ever taken off or landed on an aircraft carrier? Uh,
0: I have not as a pilot. I have as a passenger. And what's that like? Uh, it was uh, I thought my eyeballs were going to fall out when we stopped and I thought they were going to go through the back of my head when we took off so it was it was amazing it was an incredible experience when was that that was uh, 2020 when I was deployed again uh, to the Middle East as uh, the director of the the combined air and space center the place I'd worked it in 2003 I was back there as the director uh, in 2020 for seven months um, and as a part of that the uh, the aircraft carrier worked for for us under our tasking authority. Mm. So I went out there for about a 24, 30 hour visit, uh, which included flying on in the, the COD, the carrier on board delivery, a little cargo plane. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to go up for a, a backseat flight in a, in a Super Hornet. Yeah. So, uh, well, incredible. I, quite a, a
1: memorable occasion. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just, I'm interested from the position of a person who's been in the Air Force for a long time and flies jets. Um, I often wonder or worry about tanks and aircraft carriers uh, in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. How, what is your opinion of the, of the efficacy of an aircraft carrier in times of conflict when it's pretty big, it's pretty slow, and we now have devices that can be fired from 100, 200 kilometres away? How? What's its efficacy?
0: Well, look, Australia doesn't have carriers, and Thank hasn't God. for many years. Probably, yeah, because they'd be very hard to man with a population and a defence force of our size. So, uh, but I think they have utility because it's very, um, it's a very clear indication to a country to maybe reconsider what they're doing when you park an aircraft carrier twelve or twenty miles off their coastline. That's a pretty clear sign to you know rethink what you might, uh, whatever action you're about to do. You might want to have a re- bit of a rethink about this. Uh, because you can park that anywhere anywhere where there's water that's deep enough, which is pretty much everywhere. Yeah, you sure. can sail a carrier and put it there. Sure. Okay. Well, Would yeah. I want to be on it? Not really. No. <laughs> 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 You'd rather be up in the plane. Well, yeah, but as you uh, kind of alluded to, it's a, it's a bit of a juicy target, uh, and I imagine that'd be a very uh, they'd be very keen to the adversary would be very keen to you know chalk one up against yeah, whoever's I, operating I, I,
1: it. I, as I said, I, I worry about its uh, its vulnerability given yeah. the, the modern technology with weaponry. I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, that's let's hope we never have to use it. In two thousand and thirteen, you take command after you come back from Alabama. That's right, of yeah. seventy-seven squadron. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the history of this squadron. Why is it such a... Everyone I talk to about the squadron, and stop looking to Peter Ring, <laughs> who used to be there as well. Why is it such a
0: significant squadron in Australian history? You, you were commander of it. So it's one of the World War II squadrons, the 75, 76, 77, 78 wing, 79 Squadron. Yep. So it's the 70 series that sort of evolved from the from the defence of Australia uh, in World War II. Um, which is where it started, but probably more notably, it was the squadron that was in Japan as the British Commonwealth Occupation Force at yes. the end of World War Two. So it op- it was there for circa five years. Uh, so World War Two finishes, everything's good. We need to you know make sure Japan's you know rebuilt and doesn't rearm all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So seventy seven squadron lands there for five years. Uh, they're just about to come home from Japan. The aeroplanes are packed up. Korea. Uh, and korea kicks off that's right so the airplanes are packed off the troops and the aircrew are having a great big party and the next morning it's like lads we're not sailing to sydney we're sailing to korea and then they spend another five years on the korean peninsula in the the you know ongoing uh, tensions that are are in uh, in that uh, peninsula mm. there so mm.
1: as a commander of a of such an important squadron what are your feelings when you sit down for the first time behind the desk now I'm the commander, and I've got to think about tactics, procedure, dealing with staff, recruiting, disciplining. What goes through a commander's mind when all of those
0: things suddenly are uh, your job? I think it's probably summed up as fear. He's <laughs> just like, oh my goodness, really, this is on me. I hope I don't. Uh, I hope I not. Make a mess of this. So there's a lot of, uh, like you say, you. You suddenly, I can fly an airplane very well. I could at that time. Maybe not so much now, but. I can do that very well and then suddenly, like you say, you've got all these other finance decisions, airworthiness decisions, personnel decisions that you, you don't really have any training in and it's not really what, it's not your passion. Yeah, that, that's the key, Ben. Uh,
1: all of those things you're now responsible for and you just said you don't really have any training in, did not the Air Force training that led up to that appointment give you that kind of foundation?
0: As it turns out, it, it does. But when you're about to do that, you're like, I've done a lot of flying courses. I know everything about that aeroplane. Make me do any sortie and I'm comfortable. But when I've got to deal with finance, you're like, I'm not a, I'm not an accountant. I don't have a, a finance background. And sure. suddenly you're asking me to balance budgets. And it turns out it's actually not that hard. And you, you didn't even know you were doing it, but you were doing it before. And the same thing with uh, the airworthiness and the maintenance side of the house. You're like, I'm not an engineer. I don't know much about airworthiness because it's a big, long word. And then as you actually get down to do it you're like oh, actually it's not that hard I have actually been doing this okay. as a pilot because I need an airworthy aeroplane to fly. Okay all so. right now
1: that, that bespeaks volumes for your training what reliance does a commander of 70, 77 squadron have on people below him?
0: Oh absolutely you're, you're very reliant on the team uh, at all levels down there you know from the highest to the lowest you need the the lowest-ranking LAC out to fixing your airplane. You need him to do a, his best job every day of the week. And, and how just, do you
1: know that he does his best job?
0: Well, I guess uh, you hope that his training's been as good, that he's as passionate and as proud as he can be, and um, trying to make them all see the vision um, and the uh, the impact that they're going to have on the team. And this was really borne out when we when we did deploy the squadron uh, on Operation Okra, mm, which Will
1: cat do. Yeah, uh, I'm just wondering how that that chain of command that across the team from the person in the Hanger fixing the wing of a plane to the to your position. How it works? How 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 the seamlessness appears to work?
0: Yeah, I mean you do your best. There's 200 people in the squadron. You try and know everyone. You try and know what's going on in their life. You know they've got kids or they've got a wife or whatever a husband. And so you try and have a relationship with them. You can't. That's too many people. So in in the end, you trust the people below you, who trust the people below them, and you know the chain of command uh, kind and of keeps. Ha- in. Is that part of the the tradition that is the RAAF? Well, it's uh, it's military. So, you know, uh, everyone in the military has a boss, um, as most, probably most companies and most people do have a boss, but this is a direct, you know, military authority chain of command. So you you grow up in that, you start at the bottom yourself. So, you know, whether you join as a junior airman or as a junior officer, you start at the bottom and you have a lot of bosses stacked up above you and you work your way up there. So you kind of know how it works at this level and then you come up one and... Now you'll know how it works below you because you were there last week.
1: Yeah. The Australian Defence Force, or the ADF, is asked to make a contribution to the international coalition against ISIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that commenced on the 31st of August in 2014, yeah. now known as Operation Okra. Okra. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved?
0: Uh, well, I was the commander of 77 squadron at the time, so our contribution involved fast jets, and... Um specifically the Hornet. It started with the Super Hornet. Uh, they did the first six-month rotation and then it just rolled through the classic Hornet squadrons. So 75 went second for another six months and then 77 was third. So when 77 goes, you go? I go, yeah. What, what were your tasks there? Uh, well, Same as Falconer
1: and Bastille and Slipper?
0: Similar? Um, similar. Not, not exactly, but um, because we're not fighting a state. So Falconer... It was a a conflict against Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the government of Iraq. We're now invited by the government of Iraq to help them counter the terrorist threat in their country.
1: So, how do jets, fighter jets, do that? How how does a fighter jet help a country against a terrorist?
0: Well, they don't have jets. So the first thing is if you don't have something, you ask someone that's got something to borrow it. So uh, Iraq does not have a fighter jet capability, so they ask us to come in. Uh, and air power is very quick it's very agile uh, it's very precise uh, and you can stay there for with a number of jets for a quite a long time so there is air coverage in Iraq for three years straight uh, pretty much over the whole country so if a Iraqi soldier on the ga- ground gets himself into trouble where he needs some air support to uh, you know to withdraw or to uh, ultimately uh, I guess uh, Kill the enemy. So with pinpoint accuracy. Pinpoint accuracy, a, a, We come in and help Plane out. can and yeah. do
1: assistance. Yeah, very quickly. Uh, what yeah. was? Have you? Have you been? Had you been involved in any of those sorties, of any of that activity, or as man in charge of wing commander, you didn't actually fly? Oh anymore. no, I, I
0: flew. Absolutely. You flew.
1: Yep. Tell me about some of those experiences.
0: Uh, so it's varied. The you we flew uh over the whole duration of the day so uh, like 24 hours a day not not on a particular day you'd be flying in a window of uh of six hours so we'd have a window of six hours this week and next week the window would move back and the week after it'd move back again but Mm it would go through the day so uh i did a nine hour sortie and it was all in the dark and i you know apart from being a passenger on an airliner i've never a done a nine hour sortie that was my longest but i've never done it all in the dark on a you know that's not what we do in training in australia it's uh, you know an hour and a half maybe two hours and it's daylight hours occasionally we've, we do fly at night but it's you know sunset for another couple of hours so you landed in by 9 10 p.m and this was take off at 10 p.m and land at 7 a.m uh, and so fly through the night so totally
1: dependent on radar and communications with ground
0: uh, and night vision goggles but yeah and how uh, effective and a, are they Uh oh, very good yeah uh, very good Excellent. So, um, what,
1: what's the? Is there a distance
0: limitation to a night? It's the same as uh, your own distance. So, oh, right. the, the further away you get, it's a little bit harder to break things out. But uh, closer, closer distances, it's it's. I mean, it's just like looking on the ground. But it, it. We would never say it turns uh, night into day, but it sort of turns night into almost day. Almost day. And any close encounters? Look, uh, not that you've ever seen, um, but you know. Goodness knows. There, there was lots of bad people on the ground that didn't like us being there. Um, and you've probably watched, watched the the news where, you know, they just shoot guns in the air randomly at weddings, right? So goodness knows what they do when it's not a wedding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so n- not that I can confess to, but, um, you know, certainly some exciting times. And-, and what about, this was F-18s? It
1: was. And does the F-18 have a defence mechanism where if someone is on the ground with a missile and fires it at you, you can detect that and get out of the way? Yeah,
0: absolutely it does, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Did that happen often? Not necessarily no, to you, it, but did that happen? No, it didn't. No, it didn't?
0: No, never. Was,
1: in your opinion, how effective do you think Operation Okra was? Obviously ISIS technically was defeated. So did, is that me- its measure of
0: its success? I, I think it was a very successful campaign. A, a very tough enemy because you don't know where they are. Uh, you know, we might finish this interview and you might walk outside and you become ISIS, you know. So, you know, they're they're family people. They're living in the community. Yeah. But uh, they're getting up to mischief uh, as a hobby. So... Um, it's I, not I a traditional issue.
1: When I walk out from this interview I will I definitely <laughs> won't become ISIS okay That's just right. in get for the record seeing we're recording this. Um, the, the contribution of Australians mm-hmm. to OCRA, what did it involve apart from F eighteens and how many? What else was involved with air so with air had, power?
0: Uh, for air power we had an E seven, which is our command and control aeroplane, the wedge tail. Uh, there as well. Uh, one of those flying uh, from just up the road from where we were and a tanker, a KC-30 um, refuelling tanker with us.
1: The refuelling tanker would no doubt have helped you in that 10-hour period of flying at between 10pm to 7am?
0: It, it did. You didn't necessarily fly with an Australian tanker a la when I was talking about planning in 2003, you would just be assigned a tanker and okay. it might be you, on a you know a typical sortie you would refuel probably six times uh, through that and it probably wouldn't be, but it could be six different tankers. More likely, it's going to be two or three. Occasionally, it'll be the same tanker for the whole time. But
1: like the aircraft carrier, how vulnerable is the tanker during a, in a war zone?
0: No, not really. A very. It's um, we protect it, so it doesn't tend to go into the regions that are bad. It doesn't come down low. It sort of stays out of the way.
1: That leads to a question that you can not answer if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. So, but let me ask the question anyway. Uh, Australia is just. Um, in the process of acquiring 70-ish F-35s, current state-of-the-art jet fighter. It has a range point-to-point of 2,000 kilometres roughly, Mm -hmm. which means 1,000 kilometres because it's got to come back home. Um, Darwin to Asia, to a particular point in Asia, is 3,500 kilometres. How effective can an F-35 be potentially in any war that might break out more than a 1,000 kilometres away from Australia's mainland.
0: Well, with a tanker, you can take it anywhere. It's limited by probably how, how awake you can keep the pilot for, uh, for the sortie. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, highly effective, but reliant on, other, on the tanker to get them up there and back. So for 70, let's assume we have now 70,
1: mm-hmm. for 70 F-35s, one tanker is good enough or do we have to have more than one tanker?
0: Oh, look, how long's a piece of string. How far do you want to take them? Well, how many do you want there at the time? We want to go how long further do you want to keep them yeah, there before? Okay. So so we want to go
1: further than 2,000 kilometres.
0: Yeah, I think Australia has a very good combination uh, of the number of fighters to the number of tankers. The ratio is, is about right. Um, having said that, can you ever have too much fuel? No. So no. the more fuel, the better. But we don't go anywhere by ourselves either. We go as a coalition. So... In uh, the, yeah. in the you know, the OCR sense, our tanker was frequently not refuelling us. It was refuelling other coalition, British, French, US okay. Air Force. And we would do the same. We would uh, refuel the off the, the Allied
1: question, of course, is like when we've purchased X number of submarines. For a submarine, you need a submariner. For an F-35, you need a pilot. If mm-hmm. we've got 70 F-35s, does the training of the RAAF is it going to provide sufficient F-35 fighter pilots?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yep. That's the uh, that's the construct. So, is, are they in the process of being trained, or are they or do they already exist? I mean, training never stops. So, right up until the time we retired the Hornet, we were training people on the Hornet. Um, so, yes, the training on the F thirty five is run in Australia. It's run at Weemtown Yeah, uh, it's running right now. Uh, today's a working day, Monday. They'll be doing some training today. It's been running for a number of years, and it'll continue. One, on. one of
1: the great joys in doing these interviews when we were at Williamtown was when we were recording the interviews at <laughs> the Williamtown. Noise. The noise of the jets yeah. taking off, and that—that that was that made the. the mm. I'm sorry, we can't have a jet take off <laughs> here at the Wall Memorial, but that was just a magic sound. Um, your command of 81 Wing.
0: Tell us about that. So that was the uh, the almost end of the classic Hornet. Uh, era like they got retired at the end of uh, the end of last year but uh, that was as we were we would shut down number 3 squadron from the classic Hornet. we ended up shutting uh, number 2 SU, which is the training unit mm-hmm. uh, in there so as i left 81 wing there was it was half changed over to F35 uh, and the F35 was coming in so 3 squadron was back in 81 wing but it was an F35 so squadron. your
1: your responsibility is really overseeing the transfer from the the latest of the F18s it to was, the yeah. F35s yep. mm-hmm.
0: How sad was that? Oh, look, it's sad because uh, I've spent a lot of time, as we've talked about already, on the, on the F-18, but it's incredibly exciting because the F-35 and the next generation uh, of air power for Australia is, is leading edge, it's cutting edge. So it's great to see that and, and be a part of it. Where does the F-35, how does the F-35, in your opinion, rate with any
1: one of, uh, of England's or America's or Russia or China's equivalent jets? How do we rate
0: Well, England and America fly the F-35, so it's the same. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Russia and China tend to be fairly aligned in their production of aircraft. Different companies, maybe they copy each other, but uh, I'd say it's, you know, I haven't flown that and I'm not full bottle on the F-35 because I've not converted onto it, but I'd like to say we're better.
1: Okay. Is there there in existence in the United States of America a
0: jet that is superior to the F-35? Well, that's a great question. I'm, and glad I'm I not asked. a conspiracy theorist, but uh, <laughs> if I was a betting man, I would probably say yes. Am I basing that on fact or anything other than what I might have seen on social media? No, I'm not.
1: Okay, so I'm, at the I'm moment. I'm not revealing F- state secrets, but. No, 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 no. The F 35 is state of the art. It is. It is absolutely. It's the point yeah. of the
0: spear. It is. Yeah, and only just, you know, it's only just reaching its full capabilities now. So as we did with the Hornet, it will continue to be upgraded. It'll continue to evolve. The weapons will be upgraded. Yeah, sure. The systems, the sensors.
1: I know there are some things you can't tell me, but of the things you can tell me, what is the F-35 capable of? What can it do?
0: Well, it can do anything that the previous generation of fighters had done, but it just doesn't neater. So in a Hornet, as I said, uh, you know when I first flew it, I had TV screens. This is incredible. There's TV screens in a plane. Um, It had three and a head-up display. And my job as a pilot is to get the information off the left TV screen, the middle TV screen, and the right TV screen, put it into the central processor in my brain and try and make sense of that. You don't do any of that in the F-35. It's got one TV screen. It's kind of like an iPad, but it's already done the processing and it just gives you the answer. So you are freed up to now make much more... Um, much you know your processing power can go to decision making and tactics right Uh, and my Hornet talks to someone else's Hornet when I talk on the radio in the early days we did get a very early uh, generation of data link later on the F-35s are all talking to each other they're talking to the air warfare destroyer that our Navy operates they're talking to army units on the ground they're talking to Things instantaneously instant it's all just going everywhere there's you know it's it's like dial-up modem to, to broadband um, total
1: so can the F, can the current f-35 pick a, a, a target 100 200 500 kilometers away zero in on that target fire the press the button and then the jet can leave and the missile does the rest
0: uh, yeah kind of yeah maybe not quite those ranges but yeah yeah in, in essence yes.
1: I read an article recently that even with the F-35, they're still thinking of updating its
0: weaponry. Oh, of course. I'm not asking what that is, but mm. is that, is that, that is happening, yes? Oh, I'd really hope it is. Yeah, I guess I'm not close to the program, but if they don't, they're crazy. Yeah. Uh, because what, like your iPhone, are you going to keep your iPhone, whatever number you've got now, for the next 30 years? Goodness me, no! Like you're going to upgrade it in a few years' time because sure. the processes get better, it gets lighter, the battery gets better, the screens gets more fidelity. It's the same on a so is it,
1: like the F eighteen is the with the F thirty five. Is it a case of the superstructure
0: will stay the same? It's yeah. what goes into mm. that superstructure that's what gets updated. Essentially, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. the processors and the boxes and the electronics and the brains will continually be upgraded the uh, the program that runs it the windows the ios whatever it is will be upgraded the uh, the airframe will look very similar do you have a family i do husband wife yeah wife uh, well spouse uh two kids two girls how
1: hard is your job on them in terms of the commitment you have to give and the places you have to go yeah incredibly hard yeah how do you cope
0: well, we, we do our best, I guess. Uh, try and spend as much time uh, with them as you can. Try and make your, you know, the work-life balance is a is a balance, but you try and make sure that you can, at the times where you can get away from work or work's a bit quieter, um, you know, spend the time with them where you can.
1: Mm. Because in all of the services, Army, Navy and Air Force, there's always a family.
0: There is, yeah. And
1: whether it's a mother, father, uncle, brother, sister, wife, children, whatever – and when a service person, be it male or be it female, goes overseas on mm. on a job That's they it. might not come back. Yep. There's uh, always that risk, yeah. So is that built into the philosophy and training of the Air Force in terms of family's important, these are the ways we can help you help the family?
0: Yeah, I think it is. Could we be better? Probably. Uh, we do rely on a lot of um, other organisations like Veterans Affairs and um, you know Open Arms and th- those sort of uh, civilian, not not necessarily service arms, because the services are about you know providing an effect to the government. Um, yeah. Do they look after the families? They try to, but are they directly family related? No, no they're not. There's other government branches that do that, but. And if we to. have
1: if we have a a seventeen year old who's listening to you right mm-hmm. now, thinking, oh, he's Pretty impressive. He's going to have a lot of fun. I wonder whether I should join the Air Force. What would you say to him or her who's listening to you now and contemplating a career in the Air Force? Why would you tell them, yes, it's worth joining?
0: Oh, I, I would say any service I would join. You know, Clearly, I'm wearing blue, so I would uh, plug the, this one first. But um, any of them are great. Uh, you'll learn a whole bunch of life skills. You'll make friends that you have for life. Uh, anything you have, you'll be able to use somewhere else in your – in whatever work you are doing in 10, 20, or 30, or 40 years time, uh, you'll still be in contact with those people. And you know, when you're a 17 year old, when I joined for, as a pilot, you had a 10 year commitment, which sounds like forever when you're 17. <laughs> um, and then suddenly 10 years has gone, and then 20 years has gone, and 30 years has gone. And you're like, oh, I think I'm out of commitment now, but it doesn't matter. Um, so a lot of them are only like four years, which again, when you're 17, you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do four years. That's it's like redoing high school, but it just goes so quickly. Yeah. So you're not signing up uh, forever. Just you know, give it a go. If you don't, uh, if it's not for you in four years, all those skills and friendships we talked about, you'll have. You'll have, but you've, yeah, uh, and you're free to go. You carry on, do something else. So Ben, you joined in 1990. As mm-hmm.
1: you look back, as a result of this interview, as you look back at your career, what would you pick out as one or two enduring memories for you in the air force?
0: Um, in the Air Force, so I think, you know, ultimately, as we spoke about, um, a- as a fighter pilot, you, you train to go on combat operations and save your country. So you don't generally get the opportunity to do that. We don't want to go to war. No one wants to go to war. But the opportunity to, to deploy a squadron and participate in operations, I think making the world a better place against terrorism, um, was incredibly satisfying.
1: Yeah. Do you uh, not worry, but what, what, what are your feelings of the current... Situation in the world, not specifying any country or any particular group
0: of people. Does it concern you? It doesn't concern me. No, I mean you keep a you keep a watch on it. You keep a you keep, a, you, keep a, you keep abreast of information. Worry? No, because uh, otherwise you'd be worried forever, wouldn't you? So, but certainly things evolve and things continue to evolve. You could probably. You know, we were previously we were talking about Vietnam. Were people of your generation worried about Vietnam or, you know, go back a bit further and we had we had massive world wars? So there's always something going on sure. around the place. I think as a race we're getting better and smarter and hopefully um, more nicer, Very not very good English, but That's, uh, so I understand more nicer to mean. each other. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm worried, but, but I'm certainly happens, aware.
1: Whatever happens in the future, Australians can take comfort in the fact that for many, many years now, army navy and royal australian air force has the best training the best equipment the best esprit de corps the best family attitude so we're always ready and always
0: prepared i completely agree with what you've just said absolutely air commodore benjamin
1: Sleeman, a great honor to talk to you thank you very much for your time and thank you for your contribution to making australia what it is today thank you sir
0: pleasure thank you cheers
1: Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping, and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavor and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies the RAAF will never tarnish its record it carries on in the proud tradition of Abuar and Ad Astra
0: This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.